Well, welcome back. Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. I am Seth Liebson, and I've got uh, Mr. Bill is everywhere. He's being peripatetic. He's not fixated on the north side of me. But uh, my producer, David Dahl, is fixed at our western uh, western location. Uh, for all the other cardinal points, 602 uh, We were speaking yesterday of a story on crime in New York City and a concept I float here from time to time, which is acedia. I think I threatened to define it yesterday and didn't get to it. It's a form of apathy, but it's worse. It's a form of sadness combined with apathy, combined with carelessness. It's related to the word depression, believe it or not. I raise this as I raise my constant and continuing concern about our cultural and political condition, including crime, but not just crime. It relates to everything we are living through right now, from an absentee president to a less competent vice president, from our border crisis to our crime crisis to our drug poisoning crisis I was speaking of yesterday as well. Again, think of, when thinking of our drug poisoning death crisis, think of two commercial airlines crashing into each other every single day over our skies, and that's our drug death count, largely but not exclusively driven by opioids like fentanyl. Here's a hell of a question to consider. I should think it is anyway. With the most money any country has ever had, the most access to knowledge available, the Library of Alexandria available in our palms, the palms of our hands, the most scientific learning available, we have record suicides, lower life expectancy, lower education outcomes, and record drug deaths. This is unheard of in an advanced modern society. I was quoting a former New York City inspector yesterday who gave us some alarming statistics from his city. Consider, 90,000 delivery packages a day are stolen in New York City. 90,000 a day. You heard that right. 90,000 a day. Meanwhile, toothpaste is incarcerated at drugstores, so it's not stolen. But the effort of the criminal justice system in New York City is to decarcerate or de-incarcerate criminals and to raise traditional thresholds of criminal activity to lower the chances of arrest. You've seen this in other jurisdictions, as in California, where the effort was to lower to misdemeanors theft at amounts that used to constitute felonies. But this problem is all much deeper than radicalized public policy. It's a culture of blitheness combined with acedia. Former New York City uh, Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly once wrote that, quote, a number of years ago, there began to appear in the windows of automobiles parked on the streets of American cities signs which read no radio. Rather than express outrage or even annoyance at the possibility of a car break-in, people tried to communicate with the potential thief in conciliatory terms. The translation of no radio is, please break into someone else's car, there's nothing in mine, there's no radio here for you. Signs are flags, these kinds of signs are flags of urban surrender. They are handwritten capitulations. Instead of no radio, we need new signs that say no surrender. And that's what I wanted to pick up on, surrender. What is so striking today is not simply the increased number of problems, but the nature of those problems, from their widespread 
increase to the inhumanity behind them. And as all this increases, you get the sense that more and more lethargy is the response. The New York City retired inspector who wrote about crime in New York City wrote this, quote, There's nothing to be done. The progressive canon underpinning these conditions is so entrenched that nuances like plummeting quality of life and corporate flight barely register. And so we're faced with a discomforting, even tragic conclusion. Yes, this is the new normal in our cities. Let's not kid ourselves, folks. This is it. Close quote. Remember when New York City was gleaming? It isn't anymore. Remember when Los Angeles was the dream destination of the rest of the country? It isn't anymore. Remember when Chicago was tugging your sleeve, the city of broad shoulders? Those shoulders are slumped now. And as for Seattle and Portland, they followed the theology of the day. San Francisco, speaking of ads, nobody would dare say the words or the phrase the San Francisco treat today because they wouldn't know how you could put those words in the same sentence. What defines the problem of homelessness and safety, public safety, by the way, what describes it? It's the word numbness, as the populations of the homeless and the violators of the public safety are all anesthetized. And so now, too, are the voters, but not with narcotics, rather something harder to deal with, numbness, meaning a worn-down deprivation of emotion or feeling, a powerlessness ability to feel or act. Why do those cities, why do cities matter here? Why do the once great cities matter? You take them and you take the country. As Pericles put it, quote, because of the greatness of our city, the fruits of the whole earth flow in upon us, close quote. And what if the city is no longer great? The fruit becomes obviously the opposite of great. It becomes rotten. The fruit becomes rotten. And things like limbs on a tree or a body become rotten from numbness. A gangrene or necrosis sets in. In Chicago, for instance, once the great city of broad shoulders, the city of great imagination and our culture and life, a city of great political history and great educational institutions, a city of televised and silver screen imagination from North by Northwest to the Bob Newhart show to ER to innumerable first responder shows in this city where crime and educational deficits have run rampant, the voters tossed out the mayor responsible for such decline only to vote for and put in an even more left-wing and a more crime-coddling candidate. In California, a state of mass exodus, rampant chronic homelessness, crime, failing educational outcomes, and draconian shutdowns, the governor leading it all beat back a recall election in 2021 by over 20 points and won re-election last year by 19 points. Tom Wolf might call this a nostalgia de la bouille. Yesterday, with over 85,000 deaths due to fentanyl last year, mostly in the under-50 age group, the leading cause of death for young adults. Yesterday, there was a National Fentanyl Awareness and Prevention Day. How many of you saw anything or heard anything about it? And what do you think will change today as a result of it, or tomorrow, or next week? One can almost envision Charles Schultz's Charlie Brown standing on a pitcher's mound or in the middle of a playground with his face pointed skyward, arms outstretched, shouting, doesn't anyone care anymore? 
If you live in the dystopia of Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron, you have a government that implants bells and whistles in your head to clang the moment you start to care about things or think for yourself. If you live in today's America, you wonder if we'll even need those implanted bells and whistles. This is how you lose a country, starting with the loss of freedom to speak and learn and think. And soon enough, we are robbed of the human sense to care. We become numb. We become a little dead. The old theologians or theologians taught that acedia arises from a heart steeped in the worldly and carnal and from a low esteem of divine things. It eventually leads to a hatred of the good altogether. And with hatred comes more rejection, more ill temper, sadness, and sorrow. Acedia is not new, but it is on the rise. It is in ascendance. Some years ago, 1986 to be exact, Jonathan Shell wrote a piece in The New Yorker about visiting a big and well-known prominent bookstore in the city the magazine had the same name of to look for a copy of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. The clerk told Jonathan Shell he didn't know that book, didn't know that work. Shell said it's about one man's imprisonment in the Soviet Union. The clerk said, well, you might try the fiction section. Shell concluded, Solzhenitsyn himself would believe the difficulties in the U.S. were not a minotaur or a dragon or imprisonment, not hard labor and death, not even government harassment and censorship, but rather cupidity, greed, avarice, boredom, sloppiness, indifference. Not the acts of a mighty, all-pervading, repressive government, but the failure of a listless public to make use of the freedom that is its birthright. The painless gauntlet, which instead of torturing and killing people, stupefies them and puts them to sleep. Close quote. I almost want to end just there, but <clears throat> do think of one thing we've never connected before here. The crisis industrial complex we talk of here from time to time, the effort that has us all in a Bergeron-like frenzy that does not allow us to focus on any one thing, but rather continually throws alarms and alarms at us routinely, putting us in a frenzy. Well, that frenzy can do something beyond agitation and having us running for fire hoses when there's a flood. It can exhaust us, too. And you know the result of exhaustion. It's putting us to sleep. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960, 602-5080-960. Be right back. Authority always wins. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Rick is in Phoenix. Hello, Rick. How are you, sir? Oh, doing well, Seth. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Great. Hey, I was wondering if you've seen the movie Mandibles. No, I don't think I have. Okay, it's it's like Jaws, except with a lower budget. Oh, very funny. <laughs> very, very funny. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. We could, we could, yeah, okay. Some, some t- you know me. Sometimes I just can't help myself. No, that's all right. You were you were talking to us about Richard Keel and Jaws last week, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, right. Okay. Hey, brother, uh, on a serious note. Yeah. Your monologue was outstanding, very insightful, and I think very important. Thank you. And it kind of relates to what I was talking to you on Friday about, about uh, the statements that uh, Barack Hussein and Michelle Obama made uh, right around the time of his uh, uh, becoming president. Yeah. And you 
going to talk about what uh, Michelle said about for the first time in her yes. life, she was proud of her country. Right. And I think I kind of cut you off. No. And I would like to hear what you. So he won. Yeah. Okay. That, well, yeah. I'll reprise it. I don't. I don't remember you cutting me off. I thought we did it, but it was, we'll reprise it. It was right after he won the Wisconsin. I think it was the Wisconsin primary against uh-huh. Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primaries of. 2016, and uh, she said, this is the fir- her comment on that victory that night was that this is the first time in my life I feel proud of my country, which, yeah. is, which, is, which was uh, a direct quote of hers that night. And yes. it seemed to me quite odd that uh, someone would take pride in their country based exclusively on their own personal success and empowerment, as if she by the way, hadn't already won the lottery by being born here in the first place, as if she hadn't won the lottery by being able to attend colleges like Princeton and Harvard Law, uh, as if she hadn't already won the lottery by even having um, a spouse who was a credible candidate for the presidency of the United States, who had already served, by the way, in the most exclusive uh, country club in the world, the United States Senate. To yeah. tie, but to tie her pride in this country to her own or her husband's own personal success or even just political success struck me as a rather, shall we say, stinting or cabined view of what it means, a selfish view of what yes. it means to take pride in your country. Pride in your country, by the way, should not have anything to do with selfishness. Because yeah, it's pride exactly. not just in your country, but in its principles and in your country men. And one would think just being able to be born here, most of us think of as, as I say, winning the lottery of fortune already. Yeah, us, us together excludes that selfishness. You would think. You would think. Yeah. You would think. So yeah. it was a very telling point, you know, uh, a very, a very, a very telling moment as to their view of things. And it was unfortunate because, you know, there's a lot of myth around Obama. Uh, yeah. He had he had given <laughs> that great speech in 2004 at the Democratic uh, convention, uh, where he was trying to transcend petty politics, petty partisanship, and he was talking about. Blue people that live in red states and red people that live in blue states, and there's no red America, no blue America, just America. Yeah. And, and it turned out all of that was a big, grand lie. He yeah. didn't. He didn't actually see the world that way. Yeah. And, and he spent the rest of his campaign trying to cover up his associations with people like Bill Ayers and people like Jeremiah Wright, who he evidently, you know took not only the title of his first book from, but went to service Sundays after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, listening to the preaching of a man that said, not God bless America, but GD America. Right, right. Whatever we had coming to us, we deserved and earned. And I remember a lot of that was lied about, too. He... Yeah, got so bad with the Jeremiah Wright stuff. He had to ultimately, during the campaign, give a speech he didn't want to or intend to give. He had to go to Constitution Center in Philadelphia and denounce Reverend Wright. And yeah. he said, this is not the Reverend I knew. 
But that, too, itself was a lie. Uh, it was a lie because there was a story for anyone who cared to look in the 2007 issue of Rolling Stone talking about Barack Obama telling Reverend Wright he couldn't come to his presidential campaign announcement because he gets too hot. Obama knew in oh, 07. Yeah. He knew in 07 what a problem Jeremiah Wright was, and he probably knew before that, just as he yeah. probably knew what a problem Bill Ayers was, yeah. just as a problem, just as he knew what a problem it was to let Michelle Obama speak unscripted. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, and Seth, as I mentioned Friday, I think, it seems to me that they kind of let the cat out of the bag with those statements, especially Obama, in saying now the, the work of fundamentally transforming yep. America begins. And, and wow, that's such a nefarious statement and and is, is you know kind of scary in a way but your monologue reminded me years ago i had a, a a baseball cap yes and on the front of it it said i'm so far behind i think i'm ahead right right <laughs> it kind of right. reminds me right. of what we're dealing with yeah. uh in in this uh, ongoing uh, culture war and, and political war and all that, there's just so many things going on, but we forge ahead and we uh, believe, as President Lincoln said, that right makes might, and we will do the best we can. Well, let's hope. Let's yeah. absolutely hope. You know, we have a... Um we have a political party here, Rick. Thank you, sir. We have a political yeah. party here that believes that uh, might makes right. And I, I suppose that's the same political party Abraham Lincoln was pushing up and fighting against back in his day. Um, and it's an awfully dangerous point of view. It takes you back to Plato and the Republic, Thrasymachus's argument that uh, power, uh, justice is merely what the most powerful person says. And uh, that's a big, deep topic. I'm happy to resume it uh, if you like. But it's a big, deep topic when it comes to there being one credible point of view in this country and one point of view in this country that can be censored under the label of dis or misinformation. Uh, thank you, Rick. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his great website, great place to go to learn more about him and his team, great place to go to reach out to him. How are you, John? Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, Seth. I'm doing great. Thank you. John, I'm tracking a few stories here I want to run mm -hmm. by you. One of them, UPS workers approve massive new labor deal with big raises. Yeah. This is a Teamsters situation, and it uh, looks like it's uh, the highest contract vote in the history of the Teamsters, at least at UPS, yeah? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is something that was a concern out there for anyone, you know, who receives anything in the mail, right? 340,000 employees. Yeah, I know. A lot yeah, of 340,000 workers, right? And uh, they, really, they reached a preliminary deal, it mm -hmm. says. Uh, and uh, the strike was supposed to go into into play here, you know, um, just about you know any day. So they they got this supposedly got this done. 
Um, but it's going to be a substantial amount of uh, money that they're they're going to be paying in the, the dollars an and cents of yeah 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 and and, and no less than twenty one dollars an hour it says for part time workers mm-hmm. uh, and that's up from fifteen you know dollars and fifty cents uh, and then full time workers yeah forty nine dollars an hour and uh, interesting we're seeing a hun- the average will be a hundred and seventy thousand dollars when you think about the pay and the benefits. Uh, that this deal will ultimately pass through to the uh, to the uh, workers, and a bunch of pilots' unions are going through this right now too, as well, right? Uh, yes. Delta just did a thirty percent mm-hmm. raise. American mm-hmm. Airlines forty six percent. I suppose that yep. means all this stuff is going to get more expensive too. I assume for the consumer I would imagine that so. that's going to be passed on. Yeah, I would imagine. Yep, and of course, uh, this cost of labor now is going to go to the bottom line of UPS. So uh, we could see the stock was a little bit, you know, didn't really move much today. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what the long-term play on this is, is if their expenses are going up, are they going to pass that on to consumer? That's always the question. If they do, then they can keep their revenue stream coming. And maybe it doesn't affect the stock like many would think it might. Yeah, right. Uh, Connected to... um uh, a story we were talking about yesterday with mortgages and supply and yep. all that. Home sales fall again in July, right? Yes, they did. Yeah, yep. supply drops to near quarter century low, kind of tied to the same issue. Yeah, yeah that we so were talking again, about yesterday, right? Yeah, I mean, again, so it's interesting that the the median price of a home, um, you know, it fell. It, I should say it was less than what they expected, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but it's. These are at levels that are still, you know, low inventory, and that's the challenge that yeah. we're finding with with homes. And again, uh, with record seven high mortgage rates, percent, yeah, that right seven, yeah. <laughs> is is not going to be uh, bode well for the for the uh, for the market right mm-hmm. now. However, I would say this: I, I, these prices, as we talked about earlier, Seth, uh, you know, for you and I when we bought our first house, we would have loved to yeah, have had sure. had a seven and a half. What were you at rate. then? Eighteen or something. Uh, well, I recall my dad when he first moved to Arizona. His yeah. was uh, his first loan was like seventeen or eighteen yeah. percent. Carter uh, days. <laughs> mine when I bought my first house, it was I think it was twelve percent. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I I won out on that one. Yeah. Uh, but you know, ever since then, every time you know we, you we got used home, to two or something like that, didn't we? Got yeah. Got, it was yeah. down so low for yeah. such a long period of time. Many people have those three, three and a half percent, four percent loans. Yeah. And seven and a half percent is just not even something that uh, you know falls in line with individuals now with who are uh, working but trying to qualify for a loan. That seven and a half percent interest rate may just punch them right out of the right. uh, ability to qualify. That's right. That's right. So we need those rates to fall. There's no question about it, uh, and and they will over time. But uh, if you're in the middle of this right now and you haven't locked in a rate, uh, hopefully you know things will settle in there and you'll still be able to purchase that home. Um, good. Uh, for tomorrow, probably more, yeah. unless you want to say something quick about it. There's this interesting story about how social policy is affecting some of these big box stores like Dick's Sporting Goods and Macy's. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, right? Yeah, a lot of this, I did. A lot I of did. their problems due to retail theft, right? Yes, and we've talked about the amount of massive amounts of money that are being lost from these companies uh, with this theft. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what they're, you know, stealing are these uh, high-end um, purses, you know, bags, Louis Vuitton and, you know, those types of uh, products. Uh, and when I would imagine that there is a way to track these things, yeah. you know, so if someone's trying to resell them on one of the online, you know, sites, 
that be very cautious out there. If you're a buyer of, of these items thinking, hey, I'm getting uh, this you know, designer purse or whatever it might be for half what it would cost me normally, and it's brand new. Well, why is that? Right. Um, So just be very cautious and careful about it. You don't want to be, you know, helping aid this type of behavior out there in in this uh, country. Nicely done, John. You bet. Securities and advisory services offer the Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Syndicate and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, Creative One Securities LLC, not affiliated. Go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com, schedule an appointment. Thank you. You ever see Steve Perry dancing on stage, the live version of that? Oh, my gosh. That guy could sing. That guy could move. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Seth and Doug's in Maricopa. Hello, Doug. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Seth. How the heck are you? I'm doing just fine, thank you. I had a good Good, early morning walk with the Wonder Dog and then a good bike ride, and then I went to work. I think it's incredible that you have a friend like the Wonder Dog that takes you out for a walk on occasion. I think that's awesome. She will not let me start. Well, she won't let me do two things. She won't let me sleep yeah. in. And she will, Do you know why that is? Have I ever told you the story? Does, do people know the story why I can't sleep no. in? No, please do so, tell. Uh, okay, please so tell. when I was in Washington, D.C., when I got her, I was doing the Bill Bennett show, which was Morning in America with Bill Bennett. And it started at 6 a.m. Eastern which meant we had to be in the studio at about 4 a.m. to prep for the show. So um, that's the kind of lifestyle I had for a while in Washington, D.C., and I got little puppy Dagny, and uh, we lived next to the studio. That was the brainchild of my wife's at the time. She thought it would be, you know, if we're going to have to get get you in the work that early, let's get you as close to it as possible. So I would walk Dagny to work every morning. Dagny was raised on radio. Um, she would sit under the knees of, under the legs of Bill Bennett when he broadcast every morning. But that's, you know, I would take her at 4 a.m. to the studio walking, and she's just, we created a set point of wake upness for her. So she will not let me sleep in. So she will not. That's two things she won't let me do. She won't let me sleep in, and she doesn't understand Saturday and Sunday. That's that's not a concept she 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 appreciates. So the next mm-hmm. thing she won't let me do is get on with my day until I take her on a walk. So you know, I created. I, I I'm Doctor Frankenstein here. I created this this little monster of a life where we mm. get up super early and we have to walk before any work gets done. Yeah, it's it's hard because those uh, those dogs they will set their routine yep. down yep. and that becomes reality yep. and they'll look at you like uh, why aren't you right. sticking to reality? Right, is the Earth still on its axis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I've had a number of I, of course my love is black labs, and and so they'll look at you and you know like what's wrong with yeah. you? Yeah, and and they're really worried because yeah. they figured you're off kilter. Yeah, you know? yeah, something's wrong. Anyway, thank you. That's my good friend Dagny for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, um, I was I was calling because your um, your monologue was excellent as usual, and uh, and so I was calling because I had I had a theory on this, and uh, as I have a theory on most things, and some of it's even (laughs) relevant, you know. So. I, I I don't claim that the theories hold water. I'm just saying I yeah, have Yeah, you theory. have a theory. You have principles. If I don't like them, you'll find other yeah. ones. I get it. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I have, a sta- I have standards. I don't care how low they are, <laughs> you know. So, um, but here's what it is. In, in, in business, <clears throat> I mean, most of their time or in life, 
you know, in reference to how people are getting listless or depressed or they're discouraged yep. or that kind of stuff. Yep. And I think that's uh, good and bad because at some point it's important that we keep track of uh, Democrats in, in liberals um, activities because too many people want to tune out and play with their puppies and do knitting and <laughs> they don't want to see, they, they don't want to think about these things. And all of that works, you know, uh, like Charles Kreuheimer says, is that the in- most important things in life don't matter until they do. Right. In other words, when they fall apart, now you, you suddenly realize you got to do it. Right. And we've never had a fight. We take a lot for granted, in other words. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything has functioned. And so, therefore, we've never had a fight. Okay. Right. Patriot. We say we're patriotic, but we've never had to get off the couch right. and do anything. Right. Okay. Right. So um, my whole point is we're at a point where what we've been doing no longer works. Yep. And so I look at depression as good, okay. but only if we take action. Okay. Now, when you look in history, we were, a lot of the soldiers were very depressed during the first, uh, some of the first battles of the World War II mm-hmm. because we were getting slaughtered. Mm-hmm. You know, in North Africa, we were having some real problems. And and so the the problem wasn't the, that the leaders were bad or mean. They weren't cruel people. They weren't. They were highly educated, but they were dumb in terms of their their techniques. And so what happens? It takes a guy like Patton in there who might be tough, and all the high brows and the establishment uh, says, "Oh my, oh my!" But guess what? He won the battles and morale forward because they could see that their sacrifices weren't for naught. Right. And that happened during the revolution when we were we were being kicked and they were almost losing half the ar- half the army was disappearing until the Battle of Marmouth <clears throat> and they came back and we stood toe to toe to the British after after nice. uh, the winter. And morale soared because of the leadership because the technique and the tr- strategy changed. Now, I could go on and on historically, and but right now, for 45 years, the establishment in the Republican Party has had a technique, and this is the reason their establishment is not because they're bad, mm-hmm. not because they're not you know educated, they're sweet, lovely people, they're my dear friends. I was establishment until I realized 14 years ago, this is moronic, <laughs> it's not working, it has a, a, a 30-year track record back. 12 years ago, an absolute failure and progression of the left. And if the, if the left progresses, then you're a failure. But it wasn't a progression that was great enough that the establishment would have to rethink its strategy. And so what happened is the, the, the deep state grew, the bureaucracies grew, everything, uh, the regulations grew, the taxation grew, and we were sweet and nice when we went to church, you know. The, the establishment is a lot like the person who looks at a woman being insulted and said, "But I'm very, I'm, I'm talking sweet and nice." Yeah. And I rush in there, and yeah. I rush in there and say, "Combat time!" Yeah. And they're going, "Oh, oh, the violence! Oh my, my, my!" And I'm saying, "You're letting evil occur because you're more worried about being sweet now." And then when you say that to them, now they're getting defensive, which means conservatives are beginning to shift now. We're all going to Trump because the guy does battle, even though I love Vivek. It's like 
I want a battle. Yeah. Because the, the prissies have let more evil. <laughs> you can go to church. When session gets to go to church and bar goes to church, they can pray all they want. The evil that has occurred under a Biden has occurred because of their gutlessness. You know, remember, what, uh, Russia, Russia, Russia happened because of the weak need Christian sessions. And by the way, I saying that as an evangelical. So I understand. Being, no, I understand. Yeah. I, I they're do. gutless. I and they're moronic. Now, they can be we need a muscular party. Moron. We need a muscular Christianity. Yeah. We need a muscular yeah. Judaism. I, I, I may... As you were talking, I was kind of, I got to go to break. Uh, if you want to hold, maybe yes, with me will. and pick up on this, yeah. I, I, maybe I'll do a monologue on this. I was thinking as you were talking about, I don't know if you remember the old uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of grief. I think it's denial, anger, negotiation or bargaining, depression and acceptance. If I heard you right, we're at that second to last stage, perhaps. But the last thing we can do, this isn't grief. The last thing we can do is accept what we need is energy. If you want to address anything more of that, I'll let you do so when we come right back. You think about the bank failures and the stock market volatility, talk of and speculation of a recession, you know the inflation. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? Why Refi has that for you? They have the inv- an investment, a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises, where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in wife refis secure collateralized portfolio, and they are a due diligence-approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a buzz at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Or visit them in person. They're Headquartered here, they're based on Scottsdale Road in the 101. Uh, when you meet with the folks there, you won't get a sales pitch, but you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can and will too. Uh, let's see, Doug, did you want to make a final thought or point here, sir? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was. I think you're right. We're in the final stages, and everybody better get a grip. It will proceed forward in in cast to the left. Okay. They've implemented everything. When things go badly and we, we think, uh, you know, they, the left loses, they stay on the battlefield and keep fighting. And they control the narrative, and we say things like, people understand. That's the establishment way of saying, I don't need to make an argument. People know. No, they don't. The left always makes the argument. So I'd say depression is a good thing or frustration or I, I chaos, and I don't want to think about it. During the revolution, if Washington was there and you said, I don't want to think about it, that's who you are then. Right. You're saying, I don't care about freedom. Right. I just want to go about my knitting. Right. When, <laughs> so when your girls are in the locker room, don't act shocked that there's a male there. That's right. Because there was no one on our side to say, screw you. Right. And you better stand up and realize that the true loving Christian and the true loving patriot has the gumption to stand up and say something. That's right. And it, no, so no, you're right. Mr. Rogers used We're Fred the Rogers. Problem, used, not the left. Right. Fred Rogers used to say, find the helpers. I, speech after speech, talk after talk, dinner conversation after dinner conversation or lunch. 
And people said, well, what can we do about it? And sometimes I have some ideas, and then I say, what are you, what are you willing to do to help? You, are you, you know, uh, can you help? You want to help? Oh, well, no, I'm so committed to these other things. Well, okay, you know, don't, don't ask what we can do about it if you're not prepared to do something about it. Find the helpers. Find the people that are doing it. Prager says find the warriors. Thank you, buddy. Those of you on hold, sorry I didn't get you this hour. I have Debbie Lesko coming up. You're welcome to stay on hold, and I will get to you or call us back in about 20 minutes. We'll be right back.